0: Brought to you by Prep Matters and the Self Driven Child. The core problem, or a core problem with the SAT right now, is the belief in the test mm. and what it measures. I think that the SAT has jumped the shark as a useful tool because of the societal belief in these tests.
1: How important are standardized tests?
0: Why isn't my child doing well
2: in school?
1: Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard?
2: Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson. And this is Prep Talks. My guest today is Akhil Bello. He's an educator, speaker, entrepreneur, and nationally renowned expert at teaching people how to distinguish between A, B, C, and D. Going on his third decade in the shadow education industry. He has developed dozens of admissions and test preparation programs, trained hundreds of teachers, and helped thousands of students prepare for standardized tests from the APGAR to the LSAT. Described as a refreshing mix of brilliance and foolishness, Akhil is a public intellectual who combines deep research with a sardonic wit to inform the public about issues of testing, equity, and educational access. He's been featured in national newspapers, at conference keynotes, and in front of the movie camera, on the computer screen, and even on your mobile phone where the, his legendary Twitter pseudonyms and heat reads have earned him thousands of followers or bots. Akhil is also an entrepreneur and Netscape, Netscape certified instructor. After selling Bellcurves, a socially responsible test preparation company he founded with his favorite brother, Akil, I hope you have more than one, Akhil served as the director of equity and access for the Princeton Review, where he continued to work to increase access to education. Education for disadvantaged communities. In his current full time job as Senior Director of Advocacy and Advancement at Fair Test, McKeel works to earn his more lucrative part time job as a highly paid test prep tutor. McKeel lives in the birthplace of hip hop with his wife, two sons, and internet daughter, Enid. McKeel graduated with a degree of architecture from the Hillman College. McKeel, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I am looking forward to this conversation you know i uh uh I too kind of have two jobs and I meet very few people who have even more experience with these infernal the alphabet of infernal exams uh than do i um so I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you um my hope for today is to talk a, a kind of about the good things about standardized tests. That'll be quick. Um, the downside of standard—you know—how we got to standardized tests, uh, and then kind of the problems with them, and where we might go from here. Sounds good. good. So, <laughs> so let's talk about this. Um, is there anything good about standardized tests? I have one quick from from one of one of your uh, uh, presentations, but I'm
0: curious: what's the what? What is the upside, if any, to standardized tests? Um, depends on whose perspective you're looking for, right? Like, from my point of view, I think standardized tests are, you know, the blunt tool to say aware, prepared, some measure of knowledge. So I think that there's, there's information conveyed, but the problem is that the tests have been Overused and misused. So I think the good thing you get out of standardized tests is it tells you this person knows something about these things that we're asking them to know about. And that's yep. that's about all that you're getting out of them.
2: And I and I love your word "blunt." Since since you're as nerdy about this than I, you know, back in the day when the SAT had analogies, my my all-time favorite, completely useless analogy was "blunderbuss is to rapier," right? You know that the. <laughs> <laughs> the indiscriminate shotgun versus the precision you know pointed tool um right, right. I, I i know and you you had a wonderful um presentation or uh, um uh, paper that's just come out with Dr. Dominic Baker for Hack the Gates, uh, and saying that, that one upside, and, and it's a great point that the STT can, when used correctly, um, increase uh, college goingness, can kind of increase college, um, awareness for, for populations of kids for whom really just taking the STT might get them in the, into the process. But, uh, um, as we'll certainly talk about, um, those small upsides are, are, um, outweighed by a whole bunch of more concerns. Um, but just let me get off the table. Um, there, there are a lot of folks who would, you know, say the SAT isn't unfair. It isn't unbiased. It's just capturing the inequities that already, you know, exist in society and exist in education. Um, and, and arguably, I suppose amplify them. But, you know, what would you say to people? Say, look, it's not the test fault. It's just capturing things, you know, it's capturing inequalities that
0: already exists. Um, I think that that's, that's blind to many of the historical facts about the test. Mm -hmm. Or let me, let me frame it better. How about you let me write the test for your children and I get to choose the content. I will Mm -hmm. align it to standards, but all history questions I'm going to do about St. Thomas Virgin Islands. (laughs) It's a U.S. It's a U.S. territory. You should know about them. I'm going to use every passage about Martin Luther King, Marcus Garvey, and Malcolm X. I'm going to draw every literary passage from Toni Morrison. Like, you good with that? It's objective. It's the same for everyone. I get to choose the authors. I get to choose the framing. I get to write the questions. I get to use the language I think is appropriate for the wording and structure of questions. Hmm. And I get to do this for 300 years, for let's be like less hyperbolic, I get to do this for 80 years before you get to assess whether that's fair or not. And we call it an aptitude test. Right, and we'll call it an aptitude test and say that your performance on it, your children's performance on it is a demonstration of their readiness for college, career, and the world of work. And we'll throw a stereotype threat on top of that. Got it. Got So, it, got it. so like, if you're cool with that, let's do it. Okay. I'm good. That's the next <laughs> okay. test we should develop.
2: Okay. <laughs> um I'll copy edit, but I'll take you let you take lead on that. And 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 before <laughs> before we transition, I know you had a really uh a thoughtful uh read and review of Paul Tufts uh, the Years That Matter Most, and one of the really great points that he, you know, he has a, a pretty solid takedown of College Board and the SAT, and and one point, and there are many excellent points in that book, but one point that I think is worth emphasizing for folks who listen is that he looks at the data that College Board shared about scores and the degree to which they, they correlate with how kids are doing in high school. And the good news is, by and large, it correlates pretty darn well. There is a downside, though. There are a couple, you know, basically a sixth of the population whom it overpredicts, uh, the SAT really overpredicts uh, how they do in college, and a sixth of the population who it underpredicts. And as you well know, and a lot of people would guess, the folks whom it underpredicts are, are lower-income, first-gen minority kids who have already demonstrated themselves academically in their course of instruction, but somehow the SAT misses that and suggests that they are less capable than they are. And so that's very much, from my perspective, one of the, there's a real cost, right? If this test measured everyone equally, uh, but, but as you and I
0: both, no, it really doesn't. Right. I think the, the biggest problem is, and I think, I think you hit on it a little bit when you're, when you're talking about, you know, and we'll say that it measures aptitude. I think that's, that's, that may be the most important statement that we've said yet, right? I think that the core problem or a core problem with the SAT right now is the belief in the test and mm-hmm. what it measures. I think that the SAT has jumped the shark as a useful tool because of the societal belief in these tests. There is a court case in New Jersey where the judge cites the student's SAT scores as a reason for letting him out on a charge of rape. They I remember had, that. Right. Wow. That alone is reason to stop using these tests. That you can cite chapter and verse the ways in which the test scores are being misused and to tie it back to College Board, College Board isn't coming out and saying, don't do that. That's not the use of my tests. Don't use it, Florida, to give bonuses to teachers based on their scores 20 years ago when they were in high school. Hmm. In what way, shape or form is that a useful Use of the SAT, right? College boards should have been, you know, making statements to Amazon, don't use SAT scores to place your headquarters. That encodes biases and problems in society. But College Board is happy with the use of their test as long as it is used. Mm-hmm. So the the, petru- the perpetuation of problematic uses of scores mm-hmm. underscore the problems with the test right because it goes well beyond the test itself if we could pretend it is all equal once you get in the room yeah 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 then all things outside the room are a problem mm. and that's huge and that alone is reason enough to stop
2: using it well you know one thing that and i'm sure this will resonate with you you know my i for a long long while i thought of my job as diagnosing and correcting underperformance, right? Particularly, you know, we know that not everyone experiences an SAT in the same way, you know, based on what, what, what their gender is or their socioeconomic background or their ethnicity or just, you know, how they're built and how they, how they handle little stress or a lot of stress. And so in many ways, people are having the, the test is, is in theory standardized, but people are not having the same experience in taking the test. And and one thing that I've often thought is that the people who do really well on this test believe that it measures something, it captures how much they know, it captures how quick they are solving math, the creativity, the problem solving, something that that, they put simply, kind of the SAT proves how capable or how smart they are. But, Mm -hmm people who underperform on this test believe that the test does a terrible job and doesn't capture how capable or smart they are. My kind of working theory is that both of those are kind of true. You're not going to bust out. I know you've described yourself, you know, as a recovering under, you know, what was your language? A recovering bad test taker, right? And so whatever score you had, you know, in high school, I'm confident that your score today is probably starts with a one and followed maybe by a six and then probably a couple of zeros at the end, or if you have an off day, a question or two off of that. And so, of course, these are developable skills. These are developable ways of thinking, but it's really problematic that the people who are underperforming on this test often simply because they don't have someone as knowledgeable and as deft as you're helping them to, to figure out what they're doing wrong and how to do it better. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think the problem with the test is that. They're used as, among other things, they're used as a test of limits, right? You know, you got this poor score, clearly, therefore, you can't. And there's no evidence to support that. Um, you know, right. if, you do, if you do well, you, you know something, whether that's worth anything, but...
0: And uh, I think that's, that's the, like, I think those right things are the key issues that are overlooked, right? The test does measure something. The question becomes, is the something that they're measuring useful and worthwhile? I would argue that Caltech, the math SAT is entirely irrelevant to Caltech. There is no child in consideration applying at Caltech where the SAT math is a useful discriminator of what they do and don't know how they can and cannot do. I guarantee- tell us why. I agree with you, but tell us why. Because the math is so basic, trivial, and to a certain extent, tricky. The SAT is a- a test of random specificity couched in math rules, right? So one example I love to do with students is I'll hold up two fingers and then ask them how many digits do I have, right? And 90% of students will get that wrong. Right. Part of that is recognizing the term digits also refers to toes. Right, right, right. right, 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 (laughs) But I'm also holding up two fingers to create a situation in which the distraction of two Yeah. Right. Is going to, and I also tend to do it with a five second limit. Right. You have five seconds to answer this question. And I I actually set it up really good. I make it a perfect SAT question. (laughs) This question is going to judge your college readiness and whether I'm going to work with you. Are you prepared for college? Are you going to be successful in your career? It was actually developed by a professor at Harvard who studied this. And so, so we're going to put all the pressure. This question's important. It's serious. It was developed by somebody at Stanford University. So there's, ooh, academic research. And then I hold up two fingers and say, how many digits do I have? And now you're going to have the people. That, right, <laughs> and their, their brains, brains fly, right? And freeze. Give, <laughs> right, their brains freeze. I freak them out. I give them five seconds to do it. So you have the people who answer quickest, who always say two, because that's what they see. Because mm-hmm. they did not expect me to simply be tricking them and evil. Right? Right, then right. you have those who come later who say five because they've thought about it a little bit more deeply. Hmm. Then you might have the people who answer eight thinking only about the fingers, not the thumbs, which is totally right, legit. Yeah. And then the tens who now who are probably the latest answers. And then the 20 probably never comes because who's ever really asked us to think about the definition of the word digit. Right. It's such a <laughs> narrow word. It's such a weird context that means nothing. And I think that's in essence what the SAT is getting at. Now, did that actually test knowledge? Absolutely. It tested your knowledge of the word digit. Is that a useful thing to test? I don't know. I'm not mm. sure that, that like <laughs> like I'm not sure that that's actually necessary and useful. Right? I actually used to do it with fingers, and I said for a long time that the answer was ten. Until I looked up fingers and realized that actually the dictionary definition of fingers does not include thumbs. I thought the thumb was a subset of fingers, but it's actually not. <laughs> okay, so, so like, and then now we're getting into parsing all kinds of different things. Like, does it actually matter? I don't think it does. <laughs> My it goes to t- <laughs> t- testing esoterica. Back when words hashtag you know hashtag ST words were part of the right. test, right? Right. And and that's a lot of what the test does. And test makers want to convince, convince us that that level, that all of those levels, pick a level in which that question is like, so everyone's drawing their lines at where that question is good, bad, indifferent, useful, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And it's all a fake line that you're choosing to draw personally. And the field of psychometrics is designed to quantify that line and say that this is the line we should draw.
2: Wow. Let me, (laughs) let let me, let me shift blame, shift focus, shift blame, shift blame a little bit too. So a lot of what you're saying is, um, known by a lot of people who make decisions based on these tests. And yet they make decisions based upon these tests. So. For folks who are listening, given all these problems, why are colleges, and we're going to talk about test score optional for, for quite, quite a bit, but why have colleges so persistently wanted to use these tests? I mean, what's the value to them in, in using them?
0: This is where on Twitter I will tweet the, the tradition gif. <laughs> it just like, you needs know, nice to be the fiddler on the tradition. <laughs> so, I think there's two things that happens in college admissions. One is, again, SAT jumping the chart. There are a large, there, I don't know if it's large, there is a subset of institutions that actually don't pay any attention to or do any institutional research. They just know that it has worked for them to date. So let's continue. Don't disrupt the system that has worked for them, however they define worked for them. Because what I've been surprised at is the number of people who defend the test who know nothing about it. Mm. The number of people who defend the test who would be appalled at the notion they go in and take the test, right? I challenge every administration, every college admission person, go take the test with your job on the line. And if you don't score better than the average score at your institution, you have to resign. (laughs) And think about how many people under those parameters would refuse to take the test, and yet you require it of teenagers. One would assume that an adult would score better, at very least in the English portions of the test, than a teenager. So then you should have no problem going in under those parameters. Right. That says that says a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, right? like, that says yeah, a whole yeah, lot yeah, right yeah. there. Yeah, right. Like then, clearly, it's not about intelligence, readiness to learn. Then, and, and I'm okay if an institution came out and said, "We have to create hoops to limit our application pool." Right. This is one of the hoops. I would absolutely be on board with that framing of the test. Hmm. Like, sure, cool. <laughs>
1: like, if you
0: can't jump through the hoop, you can't play the game.
2: Cool. Well, and one of the things too, it, it, you know, and, and I, you follow these things in your work at Fair Test much more closely than do I. But to be unkind, I would say the tests make it easier for colleges. Yes. Not, I mean, not to say that they're lazy, but goodness, if you have 30,000 applications and you believe that the SAT measures or the ACT, let's be fair to pick on everybody, that those tests measure something, if you can look at grades and test scores it makes your life easier right quicker and you can you right. know the argument that i can then spend twice as much time looking at half the number of applicants rather than having to sift
0: through all of those what's wrong with that argument because that's actually very rarely the argument that's actually made
1: hmm.
0: Okay, it's rarely the argument that they will admit to right and i think and again i think that part of the issue here is that we are we are Generalizing across institutions in a way that's unfair to many institutions, right? So, I will just mm. upfront admit that we are generalizing in a way that is unfair to many institutions. Many institutions who do read holistically may not consider scores in that way. Some of them aren't simply using it to weed out thousands and thousands of applications, right? Right, right. Right. So, I think that there's there's a level of nuance to how institutions use scores that tend to get overlooked in the pub in the popular and public discussions of admissions right um there's also a high level of correlation between the top performing students by curriculum gPA and the top performing students by test scores. There's often a correlation a, a fairly strong correlation to those things which actually for me argue against the test because No one wants to admit students without a GPA. We all, you know, want a GPA despite, you know, the narrative of grade inflation, whether that is true or not. So my question is, what do test scores? Do test scores add enough to the conversation to be worth the, the problems they create? And every time I evaluate it along that lines, the answer is no test scores have generated a billion dollar test prep industry right is that worth it to get a 2% 2% added to your graduation rate right from 3 to 8% added to the predictive validity of first year grades we wanted so we created an entire you know 2 billion dollar or whatever right, billion right, right. dollar industry around Around the test in and of themselves, and we have judges using test scores to, you know, convince themselves they should free a rapist. Like, yeah, testing has jumped the shark. <laughs> yeah, it's just like yeah. you know, any utility it might have had is long since lost.
2: Well, I wonder, you know, I, I, I wonder whether, um, I mean, gosh, because you know, I, I wasn't mindful of any of this stuff. If if tests were used in ways that were you can you can can you unjump a shark? I guess right. Can you go back to the, to the to the place where you know they have some weight? You know they're valid. I mean you know I mean you and I both know kids who are I don't know they're late bloomers. They're ADHD. They're kids with great promise, but you know for you know they have families you know challenges at home and and getting you know getting the work of school done to demons to have grades that demonstrate. There, and this is the dime in the rough thing, which I know and I'll acknowledge that, you know, that, um, the, the kids who have more promise than, than, than productivity so far. And that for some of those kids, I mean, I remember a kid, I independent school here in, in DC and really bright, super ADD, um, great grades were sort middling, um, and he took an ACT and did okay. And his, and his college counselor was like, Well, he should stop. And then, you know, he, you basically, her argument seemed to be he doesn't deserve to show a stronger score because he's not pro- producing in my English class, which made right. me spitting mad because this kid was delightful, but he was still not coming together. And I thought, for this boy at least, you know, I felt he deserved the opportunity to go in there and smack this test. So someone can go, Oh, interesting draft prospect. The challenge, of course, is you know that that across, you know, that worked great for that one boy, but for the whole society caused the problem. And I just wonder whether there's a way to kind of unboil the egg a little bit so that we could use the tests to see promise, but not use it as a gatekeeper in the way that I think it's become.
0: Right. I like and I don't know that I'm that I would advocate for test blind over test optional. Right. I don't know. Really, really, really good points. Please stop it for folks who don't know clarify those terms for us. So so test optional is a policy that has emerged um, among colleges where they're essentially saying that they allow the students, they allow the vast majority of their students to submit scores or not as the student sees fit. If the student feels the test is worth submitting, they submit it. If not, they don't right? Um, test blind is a repudiation of scores entirely. Don't send us scores or we'll come to your house and punch you in the face. <laughs> <Right>? so
2: <laughs> Not not really, so, folks. Not really.
0: <laughs> okay, fine. Not literally. But that would be, that but, would be funny. Uh, that would be amazing. We told you but, not to. Right. So we won't look at the scores at all. We'll throw them in the trash. We we, we redact them from files, et cetera, et cetera. So test blind is a refusal to, considerations, to consider scores at all. Um, And there's some debate of late, especially around which is more equitable, which is, you know, mm. I think there's several problems with the debate. I don't know what side I'm necessarily going to fall on. I'm good for both. Yeah. Um, I think that our college application process has many things which are optional. The testing industrial complex has convinced people over the last 40 years that testing is a necessary intrinsic component of producing the best minds, of selecting Mm. the best minds. What that ignores is history. Harvard was established in the 1600s. And
2: and, and let me jump in for one second. I I love that point because not that it's a necessary component of college admissions, but it's a necessary component of selecting the best minds. I think that's such an excellent point. Yes. Back to Harvard. Sorry to interrupt you.
0: So Harvard was established in the 1600s or so. The SAT was invented in 1926. So there was whatever, you know, 300, 200, 300 years of admitting and training students without test scores. Yeah. And then in 1968, I might believe, I think is somewhere like that, about 422 colleges of the over 2000 in the United States required SAT scores. So apparently, if SAT scores are finding the best and brightest minds, everyone who has a degree from Harvard before 1970 wasn't among the best and brightest minds. And so, (laughs) you know, and University of California didn't start requiring test scores until 1968. University Hmm. of Texas didn't start requiring test scores until the the 1960s, and they actually did it explicitly to exclude black students. Hmm. And today, University of Texas has the top 10, really top 7%, right? which means those students are admitted without test scores. So apparently since that admissions policy began, they haven't been admitting the best and brightest minds. So so if we're going to buy into this narrative, then you need to buy into it completely and some of the boomers – need to accept that, therefore, they're not the best and brightest minds. <laughs> so, so, so I think that there's a whole narrative around the testing that's a problem. It is easier to use what Alfred Brené called a simple, brutal number, which can only have deceptive precision, right? and yeah. Alfred Brené is one of yeah. the fathers of the IQ test. And one of his statements very early on is that the numbers they're putting to these tests you know are problematic because it creates this this brutal precision right this brutal right. number that people are saying above this number good below that number bad and that's not really what these tests are telling us
2: right right let, let me spread some of the blame around because one of the things if i go back to the uh, if i go back to um I'm an admissions person. I'm s I'm drowning in applications and gosh this just helps me cut through so I can really spend more time and care reading holistically and, and looking at things closely. Um we know that the number of kids applying to college is so much, so many more than than, than when you know when you and I were applying to college. Um and therefore, that has driven admission rates down so low that it just frightening. I looked this up the other day, you know, Stanford, which is what, now under 4%, though I, I guess they don't actually publish it anymore. When I graduated high school, the admissions rate at Stanford was 22.4%, which feels like luxurious. I mean, today, I'll play Russian <laughs> roulette with that number, right? And um, James Fowles had that great piece in, for the, in The Atlantic in 2005 about new college chaos. And these things that increased the number of students applying to colleges and the number of colleges that students apply to so we create this kind of froth, right? And so among other things, you know, I, I think of US News, I think of the Common App, I think of Naviance. Do mm-hmm. you want to pick one of those and, and kind of talk through for for folks who are listening that how one or more of those organizations creates all of these multiplies the number of people applying to college, which seemingly increases the need for a simple, blunt tool, as you say, like the ACT or ACT, to to wade through all these, where if we didn't have these systems, maybe we wouldn't need the test
0: as much because we'd have fewer kids to look at. Um, Well, I think that that's interesting because I think that... Let me actually first find more culprits rather than less. <laughs> <laughs> I'm,
1: sorry.
2: <laughs> sorry. I'm not trying to exculpate myself back. You know, I'm just trying, not,
0: I'm trying no, to pull no. everyone under this tent, man. You come on in. Yeah, let's put, we're, yeah, pull, yeah. we're pulling everybody in the tent. Okay, let's okay. invite okay. the politicians into the party right, and talk right. about the underfunding of education. Right? Let's invite, let's invite the politicians to the party and talk about the change in laws that let the trade schools and the for-profits enter the college conversation. By changing student funding from going to an institution to to following the student, right and the impact so there was a change in law in early '70s that changed the way student funding worked, and that incentivized essentially the growth of the for-profit testing uh, the for-profit college industry, right so to so explain that a little bit, because this is an excellent point. So if I understand it, let me see if I can frame it properly because I'm not a legal scholar. So don't quibble with my explanation, people. (laughs) So essentially prior to – I forget what act it was. Let's call it the Higher Education Act. That might have been the one. But prior to that in the early 60s or late 60s, early 70s, I believe it was, education funding used to go to institutions right, which meant private institutions would get some money, public institutions would get some money, um, and then they would admit students. So the institutions admitted the students, the funding came to them. You change the law so that the, the funding goes to the students and the students take the funding with them. Now institutions are competing for students in a different way because the because the student brings the revenue with them, right? And so that changes things, that changes competition among institutions. No longer are they highlighting their own programs, now institutions will probably start behaving in order to achieve the greatest possible public perception of quality. And I think that we are in the world where that is reaching ahead, and that brings us U.S. news. That brings us... Common App and Naviance and all of these other things.
2: So can I interject there for a moment to, 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 to clarify or repeat it back and at least clarify for myself? So if a, if, if the money goes to a, a kid rather than the college, colleges are then trying to woo me, right? And so is this, this yes. is part of what makes the cost of college go, at least at least the sticker price, and we'll talk about that later, at least the sticker price go through the roof, right? Because you're trying to convince me to come to the Ritz-Carlton rather than the Holiday Inn so that bring my dollars along that way. And is it is it also fair? And you may I, you may not know the answer to this. That because that money goes to the kid, and particularly if it's a loan, he bears that cost. You know that falls him along if he doesn't end up. You know, so colleges, in many ways, don't necessarily have the incentive to see the kid graduate as much because the the burden is not they don't bear that financial um, risk as much as the kid does. Right. Okay
0: so there's there's a change in policy there's also economic changes in society right like if you track back income inequality right you'll find that there's a correlation between the path and the divergence of high wealth individual and and your average income or your or your low wealth individuals and the growth of high wealth individuals starts to starts in like 60s 70s right so you have all these conjoining or these converging factors Right. That are increasing these, these problems that, that, that come to a head in education. Right. So let's narrow down the blame. Now that we've brought everyone okay, okay. <laughs> under the tent of blame. Yeah. Right. We can narrow it down to evil organizations like US News. Right. The first US News and, and the 80s, a lot of things happened. US News started their ranking. Prince of Review was founded in the 80s. And Prince of Review was a great organization in terms of challenging the testing industry. Also, I think that Prince of Review essentially created the test prep industry. Hmm. Uh, Kaplan was founded in the 30s, which is amazing to me. So let's also let's let's parse that for a second. The SAT was first offered, I want to say, in 1926. Yes. that's what I recall. Kaplan test prep was offered in 1938. So. Wow. Since the SAT was invented, test prep has been a thing, but Kaplan, if I'm not mistaken, was founded in Brooklyn mm-hmm. for Jewish kids in the neighborhood, essentially. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell has a wonderful piece on that. Yeah, right. yep, yep. So think about who's <laughs> excluded from that, right? So, and Kaplan, even in the, when I started test prep in the 90s, the story of Kaplan was, you weren't allowed to take any of their materials out of their centers. They had these libraries of information that were locked down in their centers. Wow. Right? So, like, so Kathleen wasn't until Prince Review came on the scene like test prep for the masses. It hmm. was a secret society. <laughs> right? <And> so, right. <laughs> right. It was the secret test prep society, right? Like you had to you had to buy your way in, you had to be part of the club. Right, So Prince and Review was interesting because they came on the scene saying, the tests suck, we'll show you how, and yes, you're going to pay me to show you how. I, I, I always wanted
2: to make a t-shirt to Akil. They would, on the front, of it would say, the SAT sucks. And on the back would say,
0: but it sucks consistently. Right. Test prep works, right? <laughs> yes. And, and, and I think Prince and Review took the stance of, yeah, we're going to make that shirt and piss College Board off and we're good. <laughs> like, like College Board took them to court. Like, so I thought Prison Review in the nineties and the late eighties was really intriguing because they came in to disrupt the entire testing environment, right? Yeah, 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 and yeah. and they opened the doors to the testing environment, which I think is interesting. And truth be told, they are not that today at all. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. that's a whole different ballgame, right? But so in the eighties you have all these converging factors that are that are happening the rankings the test prep the the, the navions the common app all of these different things and we're telling children go to college that's your pathway to success so we have more people being told to go to college seeking a college application industries growing around gaming the system or at least navigating it as Advantageously to the individual as possible. Right? And so you have all of these converging factors. And US news in this space exacerbated the this college or die mentality. Their first ranking was entirely based on reputation.
2: Oh, I remember. Yes. No. And, and I saw just here that they, uh, in 2020, they changed their criteria, so one of which is now. Uh, social mobility, but it's, it's of course five percent. That's well, a lot. Well, well, well test scores. No. Are, so, right, right, right. I know. It's so, easy. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll set that aside for just a moment. Just a moment, but, but, um, um. You know, one can make an argument. I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here that U.S. News and World Report tried to bring information to people that they didn't have before about, you know, per per, per, per people spending, right? And that Navion's tried to, because I know you gave a, a, a talk to IECAs, the Independent Education Counselors Association. So to private college counselors saying that we, we kind of have a problem. Um, you talked about your secret society of, of, of test prep when there's information that that not everyone has. And so if I'm US News, if I'm Naviance, I'm saying look, I'm trying to bring information so that everyone has it. Um but of course that has the effect of amplifying certain things, a certain voices, certain data at the expense of others, right? Because you, know, right. you you talked about the the spending, you know, when the when the spending per student is part of a a college's ranking, well they're motivated to spend more right, and that of course means that you then want to have more kids who can pay more right. When when a big chunk of this test scores, well, gosh, now now I can get kids who can afford to pay a Keel or Ned for test prep who they get both great grades and they have high income because they need that high income to get the great scores and woohoo! And these are both criteria for U.S. News, and and how do I mean? And so that's what I was getting at, kind of the 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 other the the blame that they can be shared because in many ways when when you and i talk about the families we talk about when we talk about colleges there are what you know a few hundred colleges that admit less than half the people who apply i mean really it's it's a tiny tiny slice there uh, jeff Selingo, we interviewed him as well in his in his new book about who gets in and why said there're 40 i think 40 44 colleges that admit less than 20% it's a tiny slice but all of these universities feel the need to respond to these these
0: pressures of their ranking, right? I mean, is is it an American obsession um, with rankings? <laughs> I mean, I think that I don't know about the so. I think the individual institutions, right? That's the challenge. I think there's yeah. there's two challenges here. One is what families and students are responding to. Two is what's motivating institutions, right? Okay. And and how those things feed into the public narrative. So. Let's let's sort of set a couple of parameters, which is sort of what you're doing with the percentages of who's admitting how many students, right? Mm-hmm. There are twenty there are two thousand three hundred and thirty four-year bachelor degree granting institutions in the United States and its territories. Okay. So to put that number of forty or so who admit less <laughs> than twenty percent in true context, right? Which means Many of these conversations around selectivity are excluding the vast majority of students applying to colleges, the vast majority of institutions and who they are educating, right? And I think that that's an important distinction that we need to be aware of. So, I don't really care about what goes on at the standards of the world, right? <laughs> like, they're just not, you know, like, like, you know? I also find it interesting. I really hope that those institutions aren't driven by rankings. Because that's ridiculous. Harvard's applications will never go down because their ranking shifts from one to five. And if they care about the number of applications that drop twelve percent because their ranking shifts from twelve to five, like that's a problem. I would love to see those institutions actually take the lead and not send data to US News. And not participate in, in putting on their website we're ranked this, we're ranked that. Because you know what? US news rankings changes about every three years. Mm. And it seems that they changed their rankings in order to perpetuate what was already there. The first ranking in the 80s had one criteria, which was reputation among other college deans. The current ranking has five or six categories of which almost all of them are tied to outcomes, not educational outcomes, but, like, but wealth of the institution, they they rank they they quantify alumni given. What does alumni giving with how do with how well I'm educated? What does you know um, faculty salary have to do with how well I'm educated? Faculty salary would pretty much preclude most public institutions from placing high in the rankings, right? Or so places really,
2: with real estate values, right? Because you have to pay, right. pay people more in New York than you do in or, you know exactly in, exactly. In so in really,
0: what they're ranking are other things that perpetuate the old college admission system of the old boy network that recruits from private high schools as a finishing school for those Hmm. private for those wealthy students to go on to wealthy careers okay because so many of the things are tied to that right and i think that that's probably that's the problem with what data u.s news supports they didn't select to look at mobility rate, which is the rate at which they take at a university may take a middle-income child and raise them to upper-income ten years into their career. Right? They didn't choose to weigh that at fifteen or twenty percent, so that it has significant weight. They said they're going to count that at five percent, in which case it's irrelevant. It's ranked lower than alumni giving, if I'm not mistaken. So somehow alumni giving is more important to their rankings than than social mobility. U.S. News rankings is crap. <laughs> They've chosen their stance. They've chosen their stance to, to measure and encode and solidify social advantage for the people who already have the most advantage.
2: Let me take that idea and ask how, if how does that so so for kids? Yes, for colleges. Yes, for colleges though. Let's pick because I know you read about this and know more about this than do I. Um, of, of, you know, Trinity College, right? You know, a mm-hmm. col- col- wonderful place, you know, top 20 or 30, whatever, U.S. news and world, but not top 10, right? And I think it was John Bakkenstead who who made the point that colleges, when they when they seek to do the right thing, they have to really work against their own self-interest, right? So Angel Perez, the new CEO of, of, uh, of NACAB, was really working hard to increase the percentage of kids there who are from marginalized population from disadvantaged um turned out they did just as well if not better academically than before they made these changes but they kind of got you know took one in the mouth right <laughs> for for the rankings when they tried to do the do the right thing and to what you know and in the degree to which families still look to the signaling of um you know I, I don't want to go to this college if it's number 27 I want to go to this one that's 17 because there's so many colleges who. What would an angel say that that um, you know, enrollments are the lifeblood of colleges, right? And if they don't have enough paying people, we're in. You know, they're they're in trouble. I mean, I'm just wondering. It's such a thorny issue because colleges, you know, need to keep the lights on, right? And they and and presumably they have the silly rankings are are advertisement for them.
0: Or do I overstate I that? No, right. That's what I wonder. Right. Like I wonder, and I I know that colleges. Like I I believe that colleges know what they're doing for the most part, right? And mm-hmm. I, I wonder what it says about priorities and values and things like that. I also wonder whether the public narrative is incorrect. Um, I don't remember as much about the Trinity story as I want to, meaning I don't know if their rankings actually took a hit or they just got beat up in the press, right? Mm. I. Th- um, because I do know that when institutions mention they're going test optional and things like that, often you get vocal alum who somehow feel that that devalues their degree for the institution to go test optional or for their SAT scores to dip or something like that, which is fascinating to me that, you know, they're grown adults with a career who are worried about what an institution they attended 20, 30, 40 years ago might be doing. Right, right. You know, in New York City, it's it's fascinating to see Adults with jobs worried about their high school and worry about what Stiverson is doing for admissions. Like, right. how pathetic are move, you? Move on, That's move on, move on.
1: <laughs> 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 move on. No, no, I like all
0: the
2: authority issues. No, 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 no. no. people, those people need to move on. Yes, those, oh, people, those people need to move oh, on. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Those people, absolutely. Like, let it go. Let it
0: like, let it go. but so I wonder whether there's an actual drop in rankings. Or a perception drop because of the noise that's created around changes in policy, right? And I think that what I hope to see more of in society is more focus on actual education and the educational outcomes and the career opportunities that are tied to these institutions more so than their perception of value. I think many people see that if the SAT scores at my alma mater dip, the perception of my degree goes down. And I just mm. can't, I, I, A, I really hope that's not a thing. And, <laughs> you know, and, 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 B, move on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: I think it's, a, I think it's a really good point, Akhil. And I think it probably speaks to the conversations that, um, Probably exist among the people with whom you work and the people with whom I work and the conversations that, you know, the, 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 you know, the 90% of the rest of the country are having, right? Um, you know, that, 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 you know, we think about rankings and, 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 but for me, one of the bigger concerns is, um, not how many people get admitted to a college, but how many people actually graduate, right? And if you, you, one of the, one of the knocks on test optional schools is that a lot of them have really, um, sort of dispiritingly low graduation rates. And, and, and it's easy to knock and say, well, you know, those colleges aren't doing a very good job we again, John Bakkenstein and people who don't know me. He's a really significant voice in higher education and is, um, uh, wasn't with DePaul and He's now at Oregon State and really looks at, at education and graduation rates and in issues of equity, equity. He's a you know, first generation student uh, to college student himself. Um, and it makes the point that when we look at, when we look at the percentage of people graduate college, it's really an input issue, not an output issue, right?
0: I also would question the narrative that test-optional schools, like you sort of threw that out there in in the thing you're saying, that test-optional schools have a low graduation rate, which I don't know that... I I think categorical generalizations around institutions are dangerous because I actually don't know... That their support actually should have that number in front of me. I have a spreadsheet with all the test optional okay. schools. I don't know that I've yeah. run the graduation rate. So nice. I'm wondering what that graduation actually is and is it lower than the national norm or is it higher? I don't think it, I would bet it's not lower. Um, okay. Partially because I know that the test optional list is driven or used to be historically, like if we went back before the Rona, right, in the before times, yeah, test yeah. optional <laughs> schools were largely small liberal arts institutions. right those who are more likely than not to have a lot of supports in place and attract the wealthy students like trinity their graduation rate when they went test optional probably did not dip at all okay the vast majority of students at trinity either the institution has resources to support them through their graduations or their parents do right and that's where you get to the test um, graduation rates are an input um one of the fun things that i did and i did it around HBCUs, because I think HBCUs get beat up on graduation rates, right? But I took a bunch of HBCUs. I actually did North Carolina because HBCUs in North Carolina, there are a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And some of them are part of the state public education system. So it allows sort of a, a broader diversity of what HBCUs are in the state, right? So I actually took the University of North Carolina public school system, and I took graduation rates and Pell rates and put it on a graph. Oh fun yes guess what happens as graduation rates go up Pell rates go down so maybe it's not the institution type that happened across the hbcus and non-hbcus across public and private so maybe it's not so much institution type as it is family resources to support the student through graduation therefore graduation rate is an input not an output Yes. Right now, clearly colleges can influence this by the amount of resources and support and tools in place to support students through graduation. Right, there's a great story. I want to say it was about Morgan State University mm-hmm. in Baltimore. That at some point they looked at their students close to graduation. And they found everybody with debt of less than $1,000 that were either just dropped out or about to drop out. And they just cleared the debt. And their graduation rate spiked by 10% or something like that. Wow. So it was essentially like, yeah, let's not let a little bit of money stop these kids from graduating. And it's a, it could have totally been a selfish move, but it was absolutely the right move.
2: I love this. And so first thank you for correcting me and and um about test option why well, I, I was trying to get to the point that you said much more eloquently about um kind of high resource versus low resource kids. And because because I I, I in one of your talks you you make the point that you, you can you could kinda of give a rats batouille about, you know, Stanford, as you as you call it, um, as opposed to the, you know, everyone else, particularly under resourced kids who for whom You know, a thousand, you know, that's such a great example, Akilah, You know, if a thousand dollars gets a kid to graduate versus not, think about the return on investment for that thousand bucks. Um, so, you know, when there's so many, (laughs) there's so many challenges in our world right now and in our systems of education and workplace development and everything, um, that it can be a little bit hard to figure out where, you know, where do you start? It's a bit of a Gordian knot. Um, but what's, what do you, when you were looking forward, what's hopeful for you? Where do you put, where, where, where's your head? Where are you trying to put energy? And where would you encourage people who are listening? Because, you know, people listening to this are, we're obviously all thinking about our own kid, but also ideally thinking about the systems, right? You know, I, for now, I need to get my kid to do, you know, get his grades and go to college and whatever, whatever. But But ideally, people are also thinking about, even while I'm focusing on my own family, what can I be doing to make the system better? For, for people who are not just my kids.
0: Right. And I think that's, in part, I'm hopeful because of all the social justice conversation that is currently taking place. Mm. I'm hopeful that that continues going forward. I'm hopeful to see more of the social justice movement take hold within corporate America, right? In corporate America, how that drives decisions at institutions, where do they recruit? right? Now, uh, you know, I want to see Apple going to HBCUs instead of Harvard. You know what? Harvard kids are going to come to you at Apple. You don't need to worry about it. Maybe go to HBCUs, go to a small school, go to Paul Quinn, you know, in in, in in New Orleans area and and go to that school, which is not a place you would normally go, right? So, I'm hoping to see some of the social justice push that, that they go to tiny, you know, go to Trinity instead of any of the standards. Right. So (laughs) if we could see that, I'm hopeful about initiatives that suggest that that's more likely to happen in the future. And we see greater benefit across a broader swath of the population. Right. As an individual parent, you of course have to do the best for your kid. But the question becomes, where do you draw the line and what do you advocate for? Right, I think of it not only so. There's the big movement around climate change and your carbon footprint, right? Mm -hmm. But think about Mm -hmm. what your privilege footprint is. How do I offset my privilege footprint? I have certain privileges as a high price tutor, right? right? So it's funny, right? My high price tutorness, I'm offsetting by working at a nonprofit of fair test. I'm good. My foot, my privilege footprint is pretty good. My advocacy is not for the parents who can pay me four hundred dollars, right? I'm I'm not worried about. Right? My advocacy for the parents who can't pay me anything. Now, I'm going to absolutely work with the parents who are paying me because that's what my job is. Right? Like, so mm-hmm. one of my jobs is absolutely to work with this family. But the public advocacy around fixing the system is about not perpetuating inequalities, but minimizing inequalities. So that essentially, and I think that one of the ways to do that, which is why I'm an advocate for test optional in all its various forms, right? I Like, I don't know who's going to win the inequality Olympics. I don't know if great inflation is worse than problems with testing. I do know that problems, that there are significant problems with testing and minimizing or getting rid of testing will help. That's the fight I can fight. So I'm going to fight that fight, right? So I think that no one can fix all the problems. Our jobs individually are to help create a more just, more fair society and do the things that we can to perpetuate that. I love it.
2: I got a th- I got a thought for you. Since I know you have such a big Twitter follower following, what if we did something? <laughs> we got a consortium of all the high-priced tutors, you and me and everyone we can dream up, and put out a challenge that for every for every client that we have, that they all give one hour of your price, one hour of my price. We can pick up, you know, John Katzman, everyone straight on all the way down. For every they give one hour of their of our rates to an under resourced. College to an HBCA to a community college, you know, I want, I, you know, because if it's a billion dollar test prep, right? Even if you took, you know, even if you took 1% of that, well, this could be fun. No, I'm gonna leave it you're, since you're, you're the, uh, uh, um, what, what's the John Lewis line? Uh, um, getting good trouble, right?
0: Is that the line? <laughs> Is that getting good yeah. trouble? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, there are lots of ways to figure out. And I think that the, you're, you're right, right? That all of us who, Benefit from the 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 problems in the educational space should do what we can to fix them, right? And yep. I think that that's that's the question: is to what extent can we broadly impact the system? Right? Because me giving up tutoring will narrowly imp- and actually won't impact them right, at right. all, right? They won't. Right. They, <laughs> if so I never different. tutor for the SAT again, they will go to someone else. Yeah right? But I think that if we are broadly, I, I, you know, I'm, I work currently with a tutoring company, Noodle Pros, and they worked with a nonprofit organization to provide SSAT prep over the summer, mm-hmm. right? So there's definitely initiatives like that, that should be that I, I would love to see more tutoring companies do as a broad initiative. And I, you know, and I actually should probably ask whether they care that that is publicized right? <laughs> and I actually love that, you know, or I know several tutoring companies that have done things like that and just not publicized it. And that to me is, is actually the right way to do it, right? Is that you're not looking, you're just doing the right thing. You're not looking for the social media win. Right, right. And if we could do more of that, I think that we can help offset some of the problems. Put me in coach. Yep,
2: <laughs> 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 and you know from from the work that I do, down, I'm working with a, a terrific college access program down here in DC. And it's uh, uh, your right, it's your point. It's uh, it's funny. I'm working on a, another book, Keel and uh, all the literature about. Um, how contributing to others and we get, you
1: know,
2: you know, scientifically va- validated g- giving to, giving to others actually is measurably greater cause of, of uh, happiness than, than spending on ourselves. So I think we may leave it there with your great words about, uh, about uh, how to, how to work on the system. Thanks. Thanks again. Have a terrific weekend. You too. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.